Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi, this is Marion Bartoli. This is Martina Navratilova. I'm Mats Villander. This is Mary Carrillo. I'm Stan Wawrinka. I'm Leighton Hewitt. I'm Andy Murray. And you're listening to The Tennis Podcast. Lunch at Catherine Whittaker's. That's what we've just had. Uh... Not made by Catherine, but provided by Catherine, and lovely it was too. It's a lot like breakfast at Tiffany's, but it... significantly less romantic. <laughs> but very tasty, wasn't it, Matt? Very lovely. Exceptional. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, we've had that, and uh, Catherine's plumbing has, has been done in the flat, which we were <laughs> concerned about noise-wise, um, but the, uh, the bathroom has been fixed. So uh, everything's gone well, and Catherine's got the, uh, got the, the invoice to pay yes i was just going to to give a shout out to the the plumber but clearly i've forgotten his name and it's not on this invoice so but he was a frenchman and he was great yeah he is he has tightened the washers on my (laughs) bathroom taps excellent Splendid. The toilet is back in action, folks. Yes. <laughs> I can serve hot drinks again. And that and that hissing sound has stopped, which you yeah. said had been going on since three a.m. Since three a.m. Yeah, I said to David, "Oh, the the toilet's back in action, so I can offer you hot drinks now." And David's face <laughs> contorted in a <laughs> in an amazing way um, while he tried to make sense of what I said. Your first thought was that I was. Sourcing the water for the kettle <laughs> from the toilet. Well, it was one of the one of the possibilities. Uh, it turns out it wasn't what actually happens in this establishment. So we're okay, folks. Um, As I said, a lot or, like breakfast or at any Tiffany's. establishment. I yeah, think not a thing. <laughs> okay, right. So tennis, um, which uh, we are here to talk about, and which we've been watching with interest all week I mean, so much happens in the tennis world doesn't it in the space of a week we did over an hour last week and and i i got to the end of that and i thought you know nothing's going to happen over the next week that will require <laughs> anything like this much and then within about half an hour loads of stuff had happened including i mean that was the day that kim Clijsters came back mm, and then yeah i think within 12 hours a 36 year old had made a really impressive comeback after seven years not playing and a 16-year-old had won a match on the ATP Tour, all within 12 hours of us hitting stop on our recording. And the um, 16-year-old was not Coco Goff, so more, and then more of that later. A fi- well, she's 15 still. No, yeah, she, she is. She remains 15. Yeah. She will be 16 at some stage. Yeah, um, yeah and then how many after, hours after that did the Federer news drop? Well, let's start with that. Not many. Roger Federer out until the grass. Out of tennis. Yeah. and uh, He's had um, surgery on his knee. Is it the meniscus again? Mm. Yeah. Arthroscopic surgery, the other knee. The other yeah. To the meniscus. one that he had in 2016, mm. which kept him out for six months. It was after Wimbledon last time um, in 2016. He came back 
2017 Hotman Cup. Did he play that? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then he won the Australian Open. So uh, that's how Federer comebacks have happened so far from major injuries. Um, this this is quite an interesting injury in as much as for all the things that were going on at the last two slams, the US Open when he lost to Grigor Dimitrov and the Australian Open when he was creaking when he lost to, to Novak Djokovic, he didn't show any signs outwardly or talk openly about an issue with the knee. Now, there's, you know, there's no necessary reason why he should, but there were physical ailments that we were aware of, but it, neither one appeared to be his knee. Well, and I think the fact that the treatment he received um, at both events, he received off court, therefore you assume that he's receiving treatment to a portion of the body uh, for which you would have to get indecent um to have treated we know he had treatment on his back at the u.s open um against dimitrov of course but i'm not sure he ever actually confirmed what he was getting treatment for um at the australian open when he went off court so i i thought he said groin yeah because right. i remember we were all speculating that it oh, was so that the is same, an indecent region that it was the same back incident that had troubled him at the u.s open and then he came off and i think he said in the press conference that it was his groin maybe that was a decoy and he also mm. had a bit of knee stuff done. well he, he said this has been troubling him for a while mm. and it's what federer does is a very calculated scheduling surgery isn't it he looks at his schedule and he thinks what is it that I still want to do with my year and with my career? And much as tournaments like Indian Wells and Miami are big tournaments on the on the calendar, to him, in the context of his career, they're not going to be career altering. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think even take away the meniscus injury and the surgery, and there's an argument for him having a break in his season here and stocking up the canister because let's face it. Um, this summer is going to be one of the most significant periods in his whole career I think this Wimbledon very possibly his last proper tilt at a Wimbledon where he'll go in as one of the favourites and 100% for certain I mean of course I'm taking a risk by saying that but (laughs) on a four yearly cycle come on this has to be his last tilt at Olympic singles gold so as you said Matt earlier in the uh, late last week on our WhatsApp yes the year is 52 weeks long but it's not for Roger Federer this year I mean that grass court Olympics period is is everything now. I think the Australian Open was a genuine chance for him to win. We didn't know he was struggling with injury. I think realistically, the French Open and frankly, the US Open, it'll be 12 years since he's won it this year. I think those are highly unlikely. But it's can- Wimbledon and it's the Olympics and this period of the year doesn't mean anything to him. And at least, at least though, he can factor the US Open into that little group of tournaments and think well you know it's it's all in the same spell so if I could get myself properly right now in this period because if you think about it um when he came back after the 2016 injury he won the Australian Open and then he won Wimbledon didn't he the same the same was that that right Mm -hmm. and Indian Wells and and Miami Miami. so it was extraordinary it was like he had that ability to to just turn it on for this spurt of time in which he was fully fit um he had similar really if you if you if you think back to to last year and, and the year before he'll have spells where he can be nigh on unplayable for for a little while and it's not just necessarily one tournament he can do it for a while but he needs to be absolutely 100 percent yeah, and timing-wise, he'd already said that he wasn't going to play on the clay this year apart from the French Open. Mm. He was going to take a break after Dubai, Indian Wells and Miami anyway. So it's, it really takes him out of four tournaments, if you, if you put it that way, Dubai, Indian Wells, Miami and the French Open. And of all the players, Federer feels like the one who could take this, well, get over the surgery, recover... And then come back on grass in Stuttgart or Halle. Not sure where he'll play first. And kind of just turn it on almost immediately, as you were saying. He he is the one who you would back to have a break. And actually that could benefit him 
in the in the short term, which is what he's looking at with with Wimbledon and the Olympics, and if you tag on the US Open as well. So, although I think last year he actually benefited from playing on the clay, he said that himself. He felt like he got his kind of timing right on his ground strokes before the grass. You know, he's he's taken breaks when he's not played on clay and come back on on the grass fine in 2017 and 2018 so it's it's the best period of the year to have this problem for Federer yeah and if he is short physically he doesn't there's not even a discussion to be had is there the guy's nearly 40 that he he incredibly can still compete at this level if he's fully fit if he's not forget it so um, it's it's sensible and and crucially he I think he's pretty much guaranteed to remain top eight for Wimbledon. He'll have a top eight seeding for Wimbledon, um, and I think <coughs> Olympics is a bit too far away to to forecast. And obviously it depends what what happens to him at Wimbledon um, and on the grass this year. But I kind of think seeding at Wimbledon largely irrelevant it's all about the draw I mean being second seed last year doesn't stop you having to face Djokovic and Nadal in in the same in the same tournament and it's all about it's all about beating Djokovic really isn't it or somebody else taking Djokovic out for him um so I'm I'm not sure that issue is is hugely significant and I also remember the last time he came back from his surgery so at the start of the 2017 season how everyone's expectations of him were quite a lot lower. Like we really didn't know what to expect. And I think he talked about, it's a good draw because I'm in the draw. That was the line he used at his opening press conference in Australia. And he did have this different mindset. He was, I think he was the 17th seed or something like that. And obviously he was expecting things of himself. He's Roger Federer, but it wasn't quite the same. There was definitely he was more liberated on court, and I think that's slightly been what's missing to me in in his game the last couple of years because he's played good tennis, absolutely, but he's not quite had that freedom in some of the bigger matches that he had in that 2017 season where he was just teeing off on the backhand, and it was all like it was all like a bonus because he just had his surgery and he had this different mindset. It was casino tennis. Yeah. yeah. And if he can come back with a little bit more of that than he's had in recent months and the last couple of years, I think arguably mm. that makes him more dangerous. I, I would still look point. at the fact that he's had two slams in a row where his body has failed him. And and from what we're led to believe, neither one of them was the knee. So mm. the I would question whether the body can just hack it anymore. The thing is, though, the injuries are rarely isolated are they? So I, I, I wonder if, you know, it, particularly the back, which is sort of your like anchor point of your body, isn't it? And groin and hip area as well. If you've got an, an injury elsewhere, it, it sets the sort of everything out of balance. So if the back is sort of a chronic thing that he manages, an acute issue elsewhere will be probably feeding into that. So, um, yeah, I, I wonder if that's a factor. And also that six-week kind of golden stretch we're talking about with Wimbledon and the Olympics, neither of those tournaments are best of five on a hard court, which is yeah, true. where his body has led him down in the last six months. Um, he was fine at Wimbledon last year, and he's tended to be fine best of three on a hard court. So that those things are massively in his favour there as well. Um, this year for Federer is Wimbledon and the Olympics, and both are huge. Mm. I mean, it was already. Yeah. And now it's just it's, even more so. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. There's no sideshows. It's the grass and it's the Olympics. Oh, I'm excited. And I kind that. of like that. Obviously, I'll miss him in Indian Wells in Miami. But, I, I mean... Everyone knows that I'm just all in on the Olympics anyway in every possible way. But I just love that Federer at those two events, it's going to be, it's just going to be everything. In theory, you can take the physicality element certainly more aside Mm. at those two, can't you? As you say, best of three. The Olympics will be fascinating on so many levels because of it being best of three. You know, All the levels. Suddenly, Nick Kyrgios feels like he has a chance there over best of three. (laughs) Yeah. Give me that Olympics now. (laughs) I just... uh, Oh, gosh. 
oh. salivating over right. the Olympics. Okay. Well, uh, a week ago we were talking about how physically the returning 36-year-old Kim Clijsters would would stand up in her return match, which was uh, but hours away as we spoke to you a week ago against Garbinia Magarutha. It was, I think, 6-2-7-6 in the end. Um, and at one stage, it looked like it was going to go more one-sided than that, didn't it? Because I think uh, Magarutha was two or three love up in the second set. And then I was driving back at the time uh, whilst whilst that match was going on, but I was sort of aware of the flurry of messages that you were both sending because of, of what you were witnessing from Kleisters, who suddenly got to grips with the, the level, the speed of the ball, and there are so many highlight moments out out there of reminding you what she used to be in terms of the, the 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 sound of the ball off the strings. And I think it's it's more pronounced because she makes no sound herself when she hits the ball. There's no sound coming out of her mouth, and so all you're hearing is this pop, this incredibly clean, st- cleanly struck ball, and it was too much even for Magarutha at times. And that second set really was toe to toe close it was brill i didn't realize how sentimental i felt about kim Kleisters until i watched that match yeah. i mean i loved the i loved the story of her coming back just from a journalistic point of view because it's a cool interesting story but from a sort of personal tennis fan point of view i hadn't i hadn't really considered it from that angle and then suddenly i felt a little bit emotional watching her and matt and i were watching it together and you said so did she used to do that tapping the racket on the ground thing before receiving serve. And I said, yeah, I used to imitate that when when I knew instantly that she did because I used to copy it. And I suddenly felt this sort of wave of emotion Mm. watching her and an even bigger wave watching her do what she used to do. We're not going to go into hyperbole about, you know, you know, it's, 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 it's like time has stood still, that that kind of stuff. I don't know. I don't know what she's going to go and do, but I know that she gave a good account of herself and I feel like there were a lot of people waiting to, to, to brand the comeback a failure or to suggest that she was silly to think that she had any chance of competing these days because tennis has moved on, et cetera, et cetera. Um, sort of imposing their own assumptions about what her ambitions and expectations are of the whole thing because she she hasn't said what she she wants or expects other than to to play tennis and to to have what's left of her career in her own hands and I found the whole thing really uplifting in a way that took me by surprise a bit and that any any kind of narrative of time stood still actually does a tremendous disservice to what she's doing. The fact is, seven years have passed. She's had more children. It's an it's it's an incredible feat that she's come back and on her first match played that level that she found in the second set. It's unbelievable the way I, she did it. I was concerned that, and especially when she was a set and a breakdown, it did go through my mind. You know. I hope this isn't going to be embarrassing mm. for her that she that she just finds out when she's out there it isn't there she can't keep up and very quickly decides doesn't want to do this anymore. Well, I left the flat here at um, Three Love Mugrutha in the second set because I had to go and catch my train and we were we were a little bit down about it yeah. at that stage, were we? We were, we were trying to. Uh, remember her comments about how the fact that this wasn't about results necessarily for her as you've said it was about coming back and rediscovering the feelings and but you know part of you watching that was a little bit it was a little bit upsetting to begin with I thought personally and then suddenly when she started fighting back in this in the second set it created this buzz around tennis that I've not felt in a while, actually, I found myself using up my phone data, streaming it, walking up Putney High Street as, as she broke back and, you know, looked like she was about to take the second set. It was like a must-see moment. I thought like I, was, I felt like I was missing out if I wasn't seeing it. I've used up so much phone data watching tennis on Putney High Street. <laughs> so if you were one of the people that Matt bumped yeah, into... Apologies, yeah. <laughs> nothing personal. I usually hate those people, yeah. and then suddenly I was one of them. Um, uh, 
Yeah, the um, I, th- I think part of that is that nobody has a bad word to say about Kim Clijsters either retrospectively remembering who she used to be as a player and, a, and as a person and also there's just there is a lot of goodwill out there people would 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 joyous at her return and seeing that actually there there are there are flashes there of of what she used to be still on show she can still do those things uh maybe only in a microcosm maybe only in a set we don't we just don't know we're gonna we're gonna see that unfold in the weeks to come it remind when you talked about the the feelings you got it reminded me when martina hingis made a comeback her first one not the doubles one she made a singles comeback and beat vera's von areva who was one of the top 10 players in the world and she just schooled her it was in, and and whenever you watched a player like hingis try to decode these players with bigger games or just physically bigger it was always quite uplifting just watching her surgically pick them apart and uh, the ping off the racket particularly with the backhand down the line and the intelligence and with Kleisters it was the combination of the, the the sound of the ball off the strings because she she showed you that she had the power to to just go to toe she could toe to toe she could still do that um which isn't a huge surprise but crikey you don't half forget mm. unless you watch back footage you can forget what it feels like to to witness it um so it's going to just be a wait and see isn't it but already that was pretty uplifting yeah it really was um i do wonder if again it all depends on what her sort of hopes and expectations are and maybe they aren't even fully formed in her own mind but i do wonder if she'll now perhaps she has the reassurance that it, and and the data of of or a bit of data about where she is relative to sort of top 20 players um whether she'll drop down a level to to try and get matches and and wins and and confidence or whether she'll sort of keep going for wild cards into the bigger events i don't or, or maybe do a smattering of both i don't know am i i think i'm right in saying that her next event is monterey which is a which is a lower level wta event um so one where you know, okay, this she's not gonna be drawing Muguruza yes, in, in the first, the first round, round. Probably. Monterey not in California. Mm. Monterey, Mexico. Yeah. Which I'm sure I've got wrong before. Oh, we've got it wrong on this podcast. We? Yeah, we had to do a revision podcast. We had to actually do an extra I spent one. like five minutes telling people how great the aquarium is in Monterey, <laughs> California. Do you not remember this? I told you my memory goes unless I have And we had a bunch of people saying, Yes, it is a great great aquarium. <laughs> Monterey that's just not where the tennis tournament is we're, we're currently doing uh, uh, an entry into the British Podcast Awards folks and uh, part of that involves doing research to find out bits of the show that we might like to put forward as examples of why it might be a good nomination uh, Matt reminded us of about half a dozen things that happened this year on this podcast that we had completely forgotten um, so <laughs> yeah. what do you expect me to know about what happened five years ago? Do a poo, lose a kilo. <laughs> my parents... That's our, that's our sort of biggest, My parents' moment. proudest moments. I can't believe we've, in, listening to we've that. included that as one of, the, one of our examples. We're leading with that, I think. <laughs> that's the podcast, <laughs> right Hashtag there. analysis. Yeah. Uh, on the subject of uplifting tennis, we're talking Kim Kleister's there. I found the whole week of tennis pretty uplifting and probably summed up by the final. Uh, an established player in Simona Halep who we were we've been chatting about over the course of the week is a player that is capable I think of making pretty much any match really watchable no matter who she's up against I think the only the only time she isn't really watchable or she's let us as viewers down is when she kind of lets herself down and that's happened over the years when she's just kind of not turned up and it looked as though she just can't bring it that day um, and dials it in most of the time whether she's playing a big hitter she's the most incredible counterpuncher and if she's playing somebody else who's a similar counterpuncher she can up her own acceleration level on the ground strokes and and try to take the play away from them and I, I love that combination plus just the the, the sheer effect that she has on a stadium. She turns a pretty sleepy stadium, which Dubai, for instance, often is, into this almost football crowd because people love Simona Halep. Yeah, she's the... 
the O negative of um, of tennis, isn't she? The universal donor to tennis. <laughs> That's the best analogy I could come up with while you were saying all that. It's not perfect. I will keep thinking. <laughs> it's the best one I could come up with. Um, yeah, and the, the match she played against Ons Jabeur, the uh, quarterfinal? Uh, yes. Sec- quarter- yeah. Second round, I think. Oh. I think it was her it was her first match in the oh. in the tournament. It feels so recent. Mm. Um that had an extraordinary atmosphere because uh, Jabir, although she's Tunisian, had a you know, given what she's she's done for Arab tennis, um she had a huge amount of support in, in Dubai. She was treated essentially as a, a home player by the crowd. Um and yet Hallop Hallop's matches she managed to manages to always make it feel like she's at home because the Romanian support is just so fervent. That match was so cool um, in every respect. And, the, yeah, the contrast of styles and um, Jabur. Did she have match points in that? Yeah, Halep saved the match point, yeah. Um, and Halep's comments about Jabur after the match were very interesting as well, comparing her game then to, to when she played her a year or so ago because obviously she's a player that just seems to be um, coming on leaps and bounds and and Halep said her her peak level has has increased considerably she still makes too many errors she she does throw in just sort of inexplicable feeling errors Jabba, but her her ceiling is is raised so much and she's she's brilliant to watch and yeah Halep created so many great matches last week well, thank other, you Simona Halep the other person that's part of what feels like the, the narrative of the week is the player she beat in the final, Elena Rebekina, who, from for a completely different set of reasons, also left uh, me feeling uplifted about the, the sport, and particularly, in her case, the sport's future. 20 years of age. And I think after her first round, I, I, I think I, I saw something on our... Our Reddit Reddit page, which uh, somebody was talking about the ceiling of Elena Rabakina, and I was thinking, you know, I don't know how to answer this because I don't feel like I've watched her enough. I've I've seen the results come in, I've seen snapshots of of performances and and people she's beaten, where, where which have raised eyebrows and made me think, oh, you know, she she must be pretty good, but felt as though I haven't sat down and watched a succession of matches to really understand why she's getting these results. And and I said to you, Matt, how special can she be? How what and what is or more to the point, what is special about her as a player? And over the course of the week I feel like I really thoroughly understood that, both in terms of her physical presence on the court. She's six foot tall, I think. Um she looks like a, an Olympic swimmer. Looks just like the most wonderful athletes. Wonderful sort of proportions for a strong, powerful, but um, someone with great movement uh, as an athlete. And she scythed her way through the draw, beat Karolina Pliskova, who's almost like a a formative version of herself in She's some ways. The android version of. Um no, is that what I mean? The, the analog, the oh. analog version of uh, of um, Rebecca is digital. Mm. I was going to say Rebecca is like the Android update. Yes, exactly. Yeah, I, 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 that was really interesting actually. That match and that comparison because Pliskova must find must find watching Rebecca quite quite tough to take because it's the same sort of model of tennis. They their their weapons are in the same mold, but Rebecca. Um, what what were Mary's Mary Carrillo's three three keys to being a, uh, a successful tennis player? You've got a hold serve. Well, obviously Rebecca is doing that just in her sleep. Um, got to have a weapon. Got to have a weapon, and you've got to Was it be p- able to disguise your weakness. Well, yeah. Rebecca's weakness relatively is the same as Pliskova's. You know, movement is never going to be given her her size her, the 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 biggest most the strongest component of her game but it doesn't feel like a huge glaring weakness that can be attacked attacked and exposed she's already developed this ability to to protect it which is what Pliskova doesn't have um and yeah it's like Pliskova but with a well bigger ceiling doesn't have it at the slams or hasn't shown it apart from that one 
US Open that she mm. has it at the slams. Because I think, you know, if you look at her last couple of years, place cover, she's had some really, really good results and, and consistently good results. And yet it still feels, I, I do agree with you, it feels like there's, stump, there's still something missing. There must be in order for, for her not to be able to dial that in um, at the at the Grand Slam tournaments. Now, but look, I'm not comparing Rabakina's results to Pliskova. A couple of months of, of, no, but it's of great results. It? I'm looking at them as just as athletes and tennis players in potential. And I, you think that she has more potential I, to achieve more than Pliskova has over the course of her I, career? I do. I do. I mean, recency bias alert, obviously. But um, I don't see that, that weakness to be exploited. And her weapons speak for themselves. Her weapons are glorious. I and like- with that serve, I mean, unless she you know, suddenly gets the yips on her serve, that's just, it's just so much in the bank every time she steps onto a court. Seems like a great competitor as well. Yeah. She didn't go Without- away. Well, she beat Sophia Kenin over three sets. I mean, mm. there's your evidence of a competitor right there. Came yeah. back from a set down to beat, to beat Kenin. That was, I think, less than 48 hours after she'd just played the St. Petersburg final. You know, everyone understood Burton's decision to pull out of Dubai after winning St. Petersburg. It's perfectly reasonable <laughs> that there's going to be some tiredness there. But equally, it's, you know... Rebecca deserves so much respect and credit for going to Dubai straight off the back of that run in St. Petersburg and just picking up exactly where she left off. Um, and the way you talk about kind of being uplifted by this kind of run from Rebecca that we've seen over the start of this season, it got me, I was thinking the same, and it got me thinking how often do we feel like that about players on the, on the WTA tour? It happens so frequently. It will never ceased to amaze me the way that players burst through on the WTA Tour. Even in the last 12 months, we've, we've, we've probably had similar conversations about, to a greater degree, Andrescu, Yastremska, um, Anisimova, Anisimova Sviontek, you know, there's so many who... Kuzmova. Um, <laughs> there's so many who can break through and are breaking through with exciting tennis. And I think I was thinking back to um, Marion Bartoli's comments about how she maybe doesn't think that the depth, she was talking about the depth of the, of, the, of the WTA Tour not being quite as strong as it was in her day. And we talked a bit about that last week, about players favouring their era and that kind of thing. But I, th- I think maybe what, what she meant is at the very, very top of the sport there's not a there's not a group of a, of players who've won multiple multiple slams you know Kleisters has come back and she's she's slotted in as the player with the fourth most amount of slams on the WTA tour but the depth in terms of players who can produce weeks or months like this with thrilling tennis almost a little bit out of nowhere and then be able to sustain it like Andrescu, Yastremska, those players I've mentioned have and become part of the establishment on the tour surely hasn't been stronger than it, than it is now. You know, you get, there's so many good players from round one in these, yeah. in these events. Um, yeah. It's just exciting. Fantastic uh, stat, by the way, from Reem Abilil here on Simona Halep. She said that 317 weeks Simona Halep has been in the world's top 10 in a row. 317 weeks, six years. I, w- I was gobsmacked by that. I don't, I don't know why. When I think about it, I shouldn't be because that's kind of how long it feels that she's been pretty much around for. I just can't believe she hasn't had dips within that period. I, think, I find that astonishing. Yeah, she's the stalwart of, uh, of the tour, isn't she? Mm. And there's, well, she finished two years number one back to back. And I think. I think Serena's done that a little bit, but there's but there's there's not many players who've done that since Steffi Graf really, who've managed to sustain being number one and even even more so in the top ten for so long. Um, there's a different different energy on court about Hallett this year. I think. I mean, I remember asking her at the Australian Open that she used the word chilled for her year last year, and I think that got a little bit taken out of context. You know, she wasn't just 
she wasn't just sort of breezing through tournaments. She she was obviously trying to win them and she won Wimbledon. But she was just a little bit more relaxed generally. But the word she used, I asked her what word she would use for this year. She didn't come out with one, but she kept talking about how motivated she feels mm. this year. And, you know, I think halfway through the Australian Open, I thought she was going to win that tournament because she was looking probably the best. And now she's backed up her semi-final run there with a, with a title here. It's such a good start to the season yeah it, feel, it feels like she's going to keep bringing it mm. doesn't it and, yeah. and therefore the scheduling will be important because as outlined already by Catherine, with the the summer that's to come with wimbledon and the olympics all pushed together and she did sacrifice the fed cup this year she didn't play romania's qualifier so she's all she's already potentially thinking about that a little bit with the scheduling uh, i'm Catherine talks about the Olympics again. Uh, but can you imagine Halep winning a gold medal for Romania, the Olympics, having talked about the, the sort of fandom and frenzy that surrounds her? Yes, I can. And, you know, the, I, the, I want to the, see the, that the video of, of that, her going back to exactly, Bucharest after with an she won Wimbledon. Well, I mean, I think for an Olympic gold, you can multiply that by several factors. I, like, I mean, it just blows my mind. I feel like I want to go and ask Dominic's team again, why are you, <laughs> why are you not playing it? And I'm not having a go. I really, it's up to him. No, I, ju- I, I just, just don't I get agree. it. I agree. I want to get it. I, I, and particularly given his coach is Nicholas Massou, who ne- made his whole career at the Olympics by winning singles and uh, doubles I'm gold. I'm going to ask him. Well, you know, it just doesn't, I, I can't understand it. Anyway. Hair first, then Olympics. <laughs> These are my questions. Yeah. You've I'll, got two I'll, questions with team in Indian Wells. I'll pop it in a compliment sandwich. <laughs> Great year. Slightly strange week in Rio. What's going on there? No, yeah. I won't mention Rio. Oh, well, no, we, we need to, we need, hook for that. We need to mention Rio immediately because that's next on the agenda list. And because of you two <laughs> telling me a week ago in these very seats, albeit without the lunch, maybe that's impacting it, um, you both told me that he was not going to lose a clay court no, match no. against anybody other than Nadal no, ever no, again. No, 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 no. No, no. That's what you told no, me. No, and I no, went no, and no. said in our newsletter, which you can subscribe to and get all of our rubbish predictions on a weekly basis, I said in our newsletter that he would win in Rio. And he didn't. And it's your fault. I stand by everything I said about team last week. He shouldn't be. Those, yeah. were, those were the carefully chosen words. Not that he would beat everyone. He almost lost in the first round. Oh, he made a right hash of the whole tournament. Yeah, Rio was a dud for Dominic <laughs> The, the one thing I did not expect to be doing in February was watching uh, two o'clock in the morning on my phone in bed, Dominic team in a third set on clay against the guy ranked outside the top 400. And yet there I was. <laughs> <laughs> he just it was what was he doing <laughs> I mean he, we should also just catch that by saying he. I think he had a knee injury well, as well but even, he like, said it didn't affect him uh, as far as I understand he hit himself with his with his racket causing that knee injury and then he said it didn't affect him for the rest of the tournament sorry but something I shouldn't be laughing at that Dominic team doesn't <laughs> lose, lose to Gianluca Magier is, uh, if, I, if I pronounce that right, seven six seven five on clay, unless something's going on, that that doesn't happen. No, and he and every, I mean he played Jaume Munar, who's a good clay court player. And that that went to three sets. He won that match. Team, you know, fine. But then the the first match he played was the one I was referencing, where yeah, that just ended up in this in this mess of a match. That was. Um, Excuse us having to look up the names, but there were a lot of people in the Rio draw that we had just never heard of before. Uh, it was a uh, Felipe Melagini Rodriguez Alves. That's the one. Yes, the scoreboard Melagin- took up half the screen on 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 Prime. We understand not a relative of Fernando Melagini. Well, I don't know. Unlike the courier that was in the draw in Rio, who is the younger brother of Guillermo. Mm. Wow. And he had a bit of a run, didn't he? Yeah. Where did he get to? Semis, I think. Uh, quarters. Quarters. Yeah, yeah. quarterfinals, he lost to Christian Garin, who ended up winning the whole thing. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Third in the race, Christian Garin. Two really? titles in a row. Two titles in a row. He beat Gianluca Maggiere. Was that, was that how we pronounce it? Seven, He's six, Italian. Seven, five. Yeah. Matt, I feel like you're the closest to 
an Italian expert in the room. Do, are, we to, are we in hard <laughs> G I, or I, soft G? I am by no G's? means an Italian expert. I don't know. I'll try and get a um, a voice note from the ATP of him pronouncing his own name. That's usually the best way forward. That, that was how helpful. we settled the Hatchinov debate. Yes. I mean, the thing about team is it's it's absolutely by no means a cause for alarm week. You know, it's just I think it's just one of those weeks where he just wasn't playing well. But I just I just kind of think why is he even playing it? Because you end up thinking actually it's not the worst loss in the world because it means he's a little bit fresher going into Indian Wells where he's defending the title. But if you're thinking like that, it's not the worst loss in the world, then what's the point of really even playing it? Um mm. I don't know. I mean I think team scheduling has long been one of the most talked about things about him. Arguably, you could say it's paying off now because he is one of the f- most physically strong young players who you, well, n- not not the top three o- outside of them, he's one of the most physically strong. Um, and you back him to do well in big tournaments now. So it has worked, but I don't know. I just think, why is he, why is he playing that, really? Yeah. And I suppose one carrot before it is the fact that it is a 500 point tournament and really the the field was probably the, the weakest on paper that that I've ever seen at an ATP 500 tournament to to the point where it became quite a talking point um, including Nick Kyrgios weighing in on it and saying if you think having all these clay court tournaments whilst we're in the midst of the hard court season is good for the sport and the future of tennis um, you know, he clearly doesn't agree. Um, and it was, yeah, it, it featured players, as you said, n- many of whom we'd, we'd, we'd barely heard of. And, uh, and yeah, I mean, may, may, maybe I need to watch more of them, but it was a weak tournament, relatively speaking. However, um, it also did feature this chap, Alcarez, who mm. is 16 years of age and who Matt has had on his radar for some time tell us all about it yes this is my chance to um gloat well sort of come on um so yeah i did my year abroad three months of it in barcelona naturally got tickets to the 500 event there this is 2017 and it was the I went to the semi-finals and the final, and on the on the day of the final, they were having a junior event, and it was the final of the under 14s. And I thought, oh right, I'll um, I'll go along to that. It was on the second court in Barcelona, which is a great great tournament. It's in a it's in a tennis club, and there's a, there's a great feel to it. And it was a, quite a big crowd for this under 14 event. And I I remember it being Carlos Alcaraz Garcia against, as he was then, a bit like Nadal, used to be Nadal Pereira, um, against Daniel Rincon. And what I remember specifically, my first memory of that match, is that Alcaraz had, was right-handed but had all the Nadal gear and Rincon was left-handed and had all the Federer gear <laughs> in terms of their rackets. You, you just immediately tell who their icons were. And... I just remember being completely blown away by Alcaraz. I think he won you know, easily, straight set, 6-2, 6-2 or something. And I remember texting my uni mates at the time thinking, I've just watched this guy who's blown me away and he's like 13. He was unbelievable at tennis. And I, I was trying to compare him to my nowhere near heights, you know, those heights of junior days. And what I remember mostly about junior tennis was... However, everyone was always in such a tantrum, you know, age 12 or 13 about line calls and missing shots. And these two were both so calm and seemed like professional, at like 13, Alcaraz in particular. And he had this all-court game, the, the sweet strike of the ball, drop shots. He was just instantly impressive. It was by no means you know, talent spotting on my behalf. Anyone would have watched him and been impressed. He was he was that good. And then they had the on court they had the trophy ceremony afterwards with Nadal, who came on and gave them the trophies. And it was just it was just a really nice scene. And I've just always had it in the back of my mind that that's a name that I've 
is that a photo that's going to be produced with with headlines about passing of batons mm-hmm. in the future? Well, he's he's Spanish, sixteen years of age. Yeah, and the the reason that he created such a stir in Rio, he was a wild card there, and in the first round he beat Albert Ramos Vinales, who's a you know a proper established player who who doesn't chuck it in and he beat him 764676 in 3 hours and 36 minutes at like 3 o'clock in the morning yeah, welcome to the ATP tour where <laughs> tennis is still going on at 3 o'clock in the morning um wow. yeah just an exciting an exciting breakthrough and he's been a bit like we've talked about Orger Aliasim ticking off a lot of the checkpoints of juniors He's been the guy for his age group. I think he's even younger than Orgelia Seam. is a little bit mind-boggling. But he was the first guy born, I think, in 2003 to win a match on the futures level, challenger level, and now tour level. So he's been ticking off these these milestones. Okay. Well, we will watch it's with interest. It's a name... I can just imagine that name at the top of the game in lights... It's mm. a bit like Alcatraz. <laughs> Carlos Alcaraz. Yeah. What a good name. It works. Like it. Mm. Okay. Um, oh, and sorry, just one other thing. He's coached by Juan Carlos Ferrero. Oh. Um, of <laughs> of um, previous Alexander Zverev coaching fame. And also, I remember the day that somebody first ever told me about the existence of Juan Carlos Ferrero. When I was working on the ATP circuit in the late 90s, early 2000s, and I remember, um, I think it was probably one of the communications managers at the time, Nicola Rosani, who who said, you know, this this guy is is going to be something special, or at least people think he is going to be. And he would, he would have been maybe a little bit older than Alcaraz is right there. And off court came Alex Karecha, who came into the press conference and I remembered what Nicola had said and I, I said what do you think of Juan Carlos Ferrero and he said oh my he's so good his arm is so fast he hits the ball so hard you know and it was just immediate really that he was getting results on the tour mm-hmm. um, it took him a little bit longer to get a first Grand Slam I think than people even thought I remember um, the the tour was desperate for this passing of the baton from Sampras and Agassi to this new breed of players that included Roger Federer and Leighton Hewitt and um, and and also Juan Carlos Ferrero as part of the group. And then Ferrero lost to Albert Costa in the French Open final. And I always remember one of the communications staff saying, that is not good for the movement. <laughs> <laughs> the movement... <laughs> it just really amused me at the time. Uh, long since departed that chap. Uh, <laughs> what would what would he make of the next gen? Uh, they, I mean, if we're talking about Grand Slam results, that has I mean, not you'd been be a saying like movement. Roger Federer is not good for the movement hmm? now. You? Yeah, yeah. It, re- it really struck me when Nadal came along and played Ferrero. Just the way that. The, the movements happen actually the way that how quickly things can change and somebody who's next the next big thing can be can, can be overtaken mm. um on the, you, you mentioned felix Aliassime. he got to the final second final in a row in marseille beaten by stefano sitsabas another good week for Aliassime. back-to-back finals but zero for five in them i i would tend to take the the positive slant on that and think well Good for you, mate, for keeping on getting to finals. It'll just come eventually. It will come. It will come. Um, I, he hasn't won a set in any of those finals. I think um, I, I thought he played better in this one against Sitsipas than in the Rotterdam final against Monfils. That one worried me a bit more because he's, he's he was... And from what I can remember from his a couple of his previous finals, seemed to be just not showing up so much for the final, just not bringing the tennis that brought him to the final into the into the final. But I thought he 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 did play pretty well against Sitsipas in this final. And Sitsipas just is a is a better, more honed player than him at the moment. So I think from this week in particular, it's it's really nothing but but positives for Auger Aliassime. Um, 
But I would like him to, and, and I don't know if there's any massive cause, cause for concern, but I would quite like him to break that duck sooner, sooner rather than later. Mm. Yeah, agreed. But I, I'm with you both. The, the fact he's reached five finals as a teenager, you know, that's putting him in company with players who've gone on to do really great things. You know, it's the same as Murray, similar to Djokovic. The, I think Tennis TV posted the, the stat that Nadal reached 18 finals as a teenager, which is totally absurd. But, you know, Auger seem is is doing really well and he's doing it um I think Tamini Carriol pointed out that he's he's defending a lot of the points that he won this time last year except he's doing it on a different surface last mm. year he was doing it over in South America on the clay now he's doing it indoor in Europe he's he's adaptable we've seen him get to the final uh, the semi-final of Queens on grass you know he's he's building a little bit of a a young career already seems to be adaptable to all surfaces. He also seems that's a good thing. He also seems studious to me, mm. somebody who will go away after every loss and try to work out why it happened and what he's going to do differently next time. And I think that that'll get him a long way. Yeah, how can I not have to stand on court with a runners-up trophy while Sitsipas does a 10-minute meandering winner's speech again. He that will be his main source of motivation. <laughs> Bless. Sitsipas thanked the photographers about three times in that speech. <laughs> and then did um, the world's weirdest Instagram story, which he ended up deleting. I really want to know the circumstances of how it came to be posted in the first place, because somebody's there filming it for him, right? Yes. Yes. Sitsipas is wearing only his pants in one of those recovery chambers, dancing, being filmed with kind of music that you can add in an Instagram story over the top. It was about, went on for about a minute and then it was up for about, I don't know, half an hour or so and then it was deleted. But, of course, everyone, Do you think his everyone's mom already screenshotted it. Steph? <laughs> Do I think was? Do you think his mum intervened? Like, who's intervened there and said... This is too weird even for you. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, his mum had absolutely no problem telling him off at the ATP Cup. No. no. Do you remember when she stormed on? Yeah. Um, so, yes, potentially. Uh, Sasha Bublik is a player who also created some headlines, got a win over Denis Shapovalov, got himself to the semifinals in, uh, in Marseille, uh, and gave some quotes, some pretty strong quotes, about how basically he's only in tennis for the money. And doesn't really love it that much um which which in some quarters didn't go down that well um i i mean you know i prefer it when players love it uh, i i love tennis i love watching it i love talking about it but i'm not that surprised when not everybody does personally yeah absolutely i think it's fine for that to um impede your enjoyment of watching them but judging him as an individual for choosing a career which he's very very good at can make a lucrative living but doesn't love I find really bizarre because we all know people that have made those life choices and and they've got every right to do that and and what, what would it be better for him to say oh I shouldn't do this really lucrative living um because only people that love it should should be able to do it. So I'll go and work in the local petrol station in, instead. I don't understand that at all. I mean, fine for it to for it to lessen your enjoyment of watching him play as a fan. I think that's fine. But to 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 judge him as a person um, for for making that choice, I think. And there's pr- there's probably plenty that feel that way and aren't being quite so honest about it. Mm. Um, and he's, yeah. long, he's long been a Kyrgios uh, type, really, hasn't he? Almost um, copycat in some ways in terms of the way he plays the sport and, and as we see there, is the way, the way he talks. I'm not saying that he's done it because Kyrgios does it, but I think that they can definitely see eye-to-eye kindred spirits. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, Tennis Podcast listeners. David here. Now, you might know that I love a bit of cooking, and I think I'm quite good at it. But if I'm honest, even I get fed up trying to work out what to do every night. That's where Home Chef comes in. Being able to put together a delicious meal without the long prep and the cook times, well, that's pretty cool. Home Chef provides fresh ingredients and chef-designed recipes conveniently delivered to your doorstep to simplify your cooking experience. They have over 30 options a week and serve a variety of dietary needs, so you don't have to worry about what to make ahead of time. Not only is it convenient, but it's economical too. Home Chef customers save an average of $86 per month on groceries. Now, for a limited time, Home Chef is offering Tennis Podcast listeners 18 free meals plus free dessert for life and, of course, free shipping on your very first box. Go to homechef.com slash tennis. That's homechef.com slash tennis for 18 free meals and free dessert for life. You heard it right. Well, 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 there's just been a rapping at the door, and another plumber has just come to the door, and he's no, had a rather... building manager. Oh, crikey, it's all happening. Ironically, next door are also having major plumbing issues. Oh, okay. What are the chances? But th- their ceiling has collapsed, apparently, so oh. sucks to do them. God. Right? Um, this one looks all right, Merman, <laughs> um, I think. So we, if, we, if you hear us just run out of the room, <laughs> you'll know what's happened. Um, so the other major tournament that was going on last week was in Delray Beach. They had quite a bit of rain there. And in the end, it was won by Riley Opelka. So we had the most wonderful net handshake scene with the seven feet tall Riley Opelka of the United States beating the five foot seven inch tall uh, Yoshihito Nishioka of Japan uh, in the final. So uh, I will always find that funny. <laughs> no matter how many times they play. And they played like two weeks ago in New York and it was funny then and it was funny again. It, yeah. But it is a it is a demonstration of yeah, what other sports? What other where, sport where you can have a five foot seven and a seven foot tall competing at the absolute highest level? It's it's, it's it does great. say something about tennis. Yeah, that that image. Height doesn't always help, as I've <laughs> just discovered uh, in this room against these two opponents. I'm zero for two against the other tennis podcast presenters. Uh, we also had Jack Sock winning his first tennis match since 2018 on the tour, apart from the Labour Cup, and he was in tears afterwards. Um, a good win for him over Radu Albot. And, uh, yeah, I mean, it's quite moving, actually, I thought, seeing seeing that scene, because he, he looks like he's... I know, I know he's... <laughs> He's pretty brash at times, Jack Sock, and I find I can find it pretty off-putting at times. But I think I get the feeling that he's found it all pretty hard the last few years. Yeah, and I think it's been easy for—I'm sure we've been guilty guilty of it—to sort of lazily think, "Oh, he doesn't doesn't care very much anymore," because his demeanour is sort of you know cocky, jockish, American. Um, but that's that does him a disservice. It was very clear how much how much he does care and and clearly how how difficult the last year or so's been for me i mean he's been a bit of a butt of jokes really perhaps mm. not publicly but i think privately um so yeah it was it was quite uplifting actually it was quite moving um cuz i mean it was it was just the most extraordinary fall fall from grace yeah uh, you you just don't see you don't see trajectories like that really of course you see comebacks and drop-offs and all the rest of it but it was just 
ludicrous almost what yeah. happened to him. So, By the way, just a quick mention for a wildcard American, Brandon Nakashima, who was beaten by Yoshihito Nishioka 3-6-7-6-6-4 in the quarterfinals. Nakashima has been working with Pat Cash, who is a good friend of ours here on the Tennis Podcast. And uh, I think there are... You know, it's for a couple of weeks, in the words of Cash on uh, Twitter here. But um, yeah, he sounded quite like an exciting player, and I'm always just interested to see when a a former champion, Grand Slam champion like that, hooks up with a player. A little bit like you're talking about with Ferrero and um, and Alcaraz, really, how that's going to go, and uh, and and what sort of progress they might make together. So we'll keep a, an eye on that. Um, also, very sad news about the passing of Jean Everts Dubin, who is the sister, the younger sister of uh, Chris Everts. Um, that that was uh, revealed over the course of the, the last week. Really sad, and our thoughts go out to her and uh, and their family. Um, I hadn't realised how how good a player she was. I no, didn't, she was a, a couple of times into the third round of the U.S. Open, forty two in the world and amazing pictures emerging of um, of the two of them together on the tennis court and in particular a magazine cover of, of Chris and, mm. and Jean on um, Tennis USA magazine together, which was, um, yeah, really amazing. Really, um, yeah, thoughts go out to, to Chris Everett. I think they were quite close. Yeah. Um, also should just mention the coronavirus, which is starting to make itself felt on the tennis circuit. We've had a, a couple of tournament cancellations over the last week, one um, in the Far East and one, I think, in Italy mm. as well, where, the, where there's been a pretty sig- the most significant outbreak in Europe um, of, of the virus and its effects. Um, I got in touch with the Vice President of Communications at uh, the WTA and asked her on the position of the WTA about the coronavirus, given the tour is so heavily stacked at the end of the year um, with their major events, with their WTA finals in Shenzhen. There's the big tournament in Wuhan. There's the other one in Beijing, uh, all in October and November. And uh, she said... We're watching it closely. There, there is nothing more important than protecting the health of our players, the WTA and the event staff, and of course fans. Um, and they haven't made any strong, firm decisions about anything at this stage. But it's something that they're monitoring, and it's uh, it is going to be interesting, isn't it, to see what they end up doing and whether the, whether it involves cancellations or relocations of events. Um, but it's a it's a hugely worrying time, obviously. As she says, nothing's more important than human beings. But as a as a business, as a sports business, the WTA is so heavily reliant on that part of the world for the season end. So we'll we'll wait and see. And the Olympics. Yeah, of course. Yeah, in Tokyo in uh, in the summer. I'll just be our Olympics correspondent for the next six months, shall I? What, like you haven't been for the last eight years? <laughs> So, Catherine Whitaker has got uh, huge Olympic logos up all over her flat. I am actually sitting on um, my cushion that I bought from from Pyeongchang. She is as well. <laughs> I was only joking. This is horrible. <laughs> and yet it still sits. Got a winky bear on it. Proudly in the flat. Um, is there anything else? Shout outs. Shout outs, yes. For those who have backed us at the £100 level and, and enabled us to, to keep this show on the road. Who have we got? We have a, we have a Friends of the Podcast shout out special today. Excellent. To uh, Tash and Dave Levy. Oh, hey, Tash and Dave. Bless Hello. Them. Thanks, Thank folks. Thank you very much. And to Tony Maybe. Oh. Tony, who uh, is somebody who works for the BBC and various other broadcasters editing the most wonderful montages that you see on your television screens at tennis tournaments and uh, somebody who's a great friend of ours at Queen's Club particularly. And And I know he's a big listener because I was getting my lunch at Wimbledon last year towards the end of the tournament and I was getting a burger and chips and on my I dropped my tray and my chips went everywhere and suddenly this this man came up behind me and said you need to explain yourself young man and it was Tony Maybe. And I thought, oh, God, yeah, I just, I just wasn't thinking. I just, I, my hand slipped. I dropped my chip. said, no, no, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how you knew that Federer had been stung by a bee in the second round of the Australian <laughs> Open. 
and, oh, and I was like, oh, yeah, that, that also <laughs> happened. <laughs> oh, there we are. So He's a good bloke, Tony. Thanks for listening. And thanks for the support. More shout-outs next week. Uh, our, our mascot is Butler. Catherine's face lights up. Uh, the mention of Butler. And, uh, yeah, so huge thanks to everybody who supported us, of course, at the start of the year. And uh, we will be back with another edition of the Tennis Podcast next week. We are making our plans for the year. Uh, we are loving every minute of it. Hope you're enjoying the show, too. And we'll be back with you next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.